Welcome to Christian Fellowship Ministries. We are glad you joined us. This sermon series challenges us to check ourselves from the inside out. Listen as Pastor Lucas O'Neill explains. Many of you are rushing off to a wedding after the service today. Um, and, you know, in preparing for this passage, you know, as a pastor, as, a, as an officiator of weddings and everything, you know, uh, when, when the couple goes through the I do's and the vows, you know, there's always that awkward moment. I don't know if you ever feel it when you're sitting there in the wedding and you're watching a wedding and you know the couple, you know they want this and everything. But when it gets to that I do, and if one of them takes too long to say it, don't you get like those nerves like, wait. Why is he stalling, you know? Why is she waiting? I do. Oh, and it's like a relief, right? Until the words are said, there's just this, this little tiny question mark, maybe. Um, what if one day um, you approach the king? You know, the king that we've been talking about, that Matthew's been talking about as we've been walking through this book. And there's a long line, and then the line, I don't know exactly how it's going to go down, but they approach Jesus. Do you know me? I do. And they enter in. And you're looking at your ticket number, you know, and you're next. And then you walk up. How confident are you that when you ask, do you know me? That he's going to say, I do. I do know you. I do know you. 80%? How confident are you? Uh, I just came back from Boston, and one of, my, one of my first trips there when I started this program at Gordon-Conwell. Um, actually, no, it was uh, when I was out visiting Liberty Corner, my wife came with me and we drove out to Boston. That's the occasion. Uh, so edit that from the sermon so it doesn't sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, the power of technology. Um, we drove out to Boston. We went, let's go to a, a, a Boston Red Sox game. I had never been. You know, and those of you who know me, I'm a big fan. I'd never been. Even when I grew up there, I was, I was never, I was never went to the park. And so we, uh, we said, well, how do we get tickets? You know, <laughs> Fenway Park's been sold out for like a million consecutive games. I mean, getting tickets really hard. We said, well, let's just go around and see if someone's reselling tickets. Now, I don't know about the legality of all of that. One of you can rebuke me later. I don't know. But we go up to this guy and he's like, hey, I've got two tickets. All right, where are the seats? Good seats. And um, it was more than two. We had the kids um, edit that too. Uh, and we're like, well, you know, are these legit? And he shows it to us. And I'm like, I don't know what a Fenway Park ticket looks like. I've never held one. I've never seen one. I didn't do homework online to see how you could tell a counterfeit from a real one. I thought if this was counterfeit, it looks, that's a lot of work going into this. And so we hit an ATM, pulled out cash, paid the guy, we got our tickets. And as we're walking and funneling into this little tiny gate at Fenway Park, we see people at the turnstile taking the tickets and checking their validity and then letting people in. And Tina and I are looking at each other like, man, what if these tickets aren't real? Not only do we get the disappointment of not being able to see the game, but I just blew all that money. You know, um, we get there, and they take the ticket, they pull out the scanner, they scan it, 
He said, enjoy your stay at Fenway Park. <laughs> Big relief, right? Is that how we're going to go through life? Feeling pretty confident that we'll, be, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven? I mean, is there a way to be 100% confident? There's people that will be denied their ticket, and there's people whose tickets will be accepted. What's the difference between the two? This entire Sermon on the Mount that we've walked through, piece by piece, answers that question. This entire Sermon on the Mount is to teach the difference between real disciples that are in and false, fake disciples that are not in. Let's take a look at that, right? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus' conclusion to his, to his long sermon, right? Matthew chapter 7. Now, if you were to summarize what this sermon has been about, what we've been walking through all year, since the beginning of this year, right? what has this sermon been about? Any takers? If Jesus had one main concept, one what we call big idea, right, that was dominating his entire Sermon on the Mount. What's that main idea? You don't have to hit it exactly, but about. What, what, what is it about? I give you a hint. It's on the front of your bulletin in, a, in an image. We've been singing songs about it. Every sermon has been about it. What's it about? Inside out. Inside out? What does that mean? That's right. That's right. All of what Jesus is talking about, his lesson on prayer. You pray this way because you're praying from the outside in, but if you were praying from the inside out, your prayers would look like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's saying if you, if you were just not murdering people and thinking that you're pleasing the Lord, that's living outside in. If you really don't have anger in your heart toward people, that's living inside out. And he's showing the difference between outside in Christians, Christians that build the externals and the facade of what looks like churchiness and what looks like Christianity, but inside, they're not Christian. The Pharisees were like that. The false teachers were like that. And a lot of disciples in churches today are like that. And so this entire Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you can't have me from the outside in. You can't just kind of look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus, but not know Jesus. If you really know Jesus, then he'll produce those things in you. But it's not about the looks. It's not about the things that you do on the externals. It's not what people can see. You don't get into heaven by making everybody think you're a Christian. You get into heaven by actually being a Christian. And that's an internal reality. And so that's what he's been hammering home. He sums it up in one statement, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now all of them have been trained. Good Jewish children raised in the synagogue were trained. You want to please God? You want to be in with God? You need to fulfill the law. And so what did they start doing? They said, well, what does the law actually say? And they would just follow the letter of the law. Okay? Um, they, they would do exact, try to do exactly what the law said, regardless of what was behind the law, what the intent of the law was. Like an example that I used a few weeks ago, um, it, uh, there's a law against talking on your cell phone, but there's not a law that I know of against putting on mascara. Right? That I know of. Now, is one more distracting than the other? No, both will get you killed. But the law of the cell phone is trying to teach you 
Don't put mascara while you're driving. Don't look down and, and check out your pedicure while you're driving. It sounds like I'm picking on women. Don't, don't, don't update your fantasy football scores while, you know, while you're driving. Uh, don't look through uh, you know, your, your you know, ESPN magazine you know, while you're driving. Don't be distracted while you're driving. That's the main thing. Now, should the lawmakers make a law for every single thing that could possibly distract you? No. You've got the cell phone law to point to the fact that distraction will get you killed. What Jesus is saying is, you guys keep living according to the letter of the law. Okay, as long as I do that exact letter, whew, I'm safe with God. But God looks beyond that into your heart to see, do you, do you really get it? Are you really concerned about pleasing me? Or do you, are you really in a relationship with me? Or do you just do things on the outside to make it look like you do? And the big difference is summed up in verse 12. You know, when you think what you wouldn't want others to do to you, don't do to them. You know, it's almost like, I know, I know we're all selfish, and we all know how to please us. It, that's easy. That's easy for us to know what makes me mad. So he turns it. I'll meet you there. You know? Now think of what would make you upset. Think of what would hurt you, what would offend you. And then don't do that to someone else. Or think of what would please you. Think of what would make you feel good. Think of what you would love someone to do to you, and then do that to other people. If you do that, all the law will just fall into place. You won't commit adultery. You won't murder. You won't even do the things that are behind those things. Now, would, you, may, would it feel good to you if you knew somebody was harboring anger toward you in their heart? Now, you might be like, nah, I don't care what people think. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It doesn't feel good that someone else is harboring bitterness toward you in their heart. Well, if it doesn't feel good to you, then you don't do it to people. Would it feel good if you found out that someone is lusting your spouse? Will that make you angry or make you happy? Don't do it to other people. See what Jesus is saying? If you're from the, transformed from the inside out, it's not going to be just about looks. Even those interior things, like what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart, is going to matter to you. But now he says, look, not everyone's going to be able to fulfill the law and the prophets. I think it was in verse 48. Where uh, verse 48 of chapter 5, if you turn back, said, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember that? So you, he, he's raising the bar. You think you just follow these laws and you're perfect? You need to be like the way the Father is perfect. The Father isn't perfect because he follows laws, the Father's perfect because he is love. He's always loving, and everything he does, he's, he's loving. You, know? you have to be perfect, not just the letter of the law, what's behind it. And so he raised the bar. Right? And then he says this in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, guys. Those who find it are few. Is that sobering to you? I mean, I, I read that and I, I just get this almost like a painful, sorrowful realization of this fact that those who find Jesus are few, guys. This is, if you want to be with Jesus, you're not going to go with the crowd. You're not going to be surrounded by a lot of people that are cheering you on. It's a very lonely road. Those who find the right way are few. Well, what's the difference? 
There's a narrow gate and there's a broad gate. Now, oftentimes when this is preached, okay, the wide gate is the world, right? Drunkenness and, and perversion and sins, you know, like everybody doing what they want to do. And then the narrow gate is Christianity. That's not what Jesus is saying. Remember, this, this fits into his whole sermon. And what's his whole sermon about? The difference between inside-out disciples and outside-in disciples. Both are trying to look the part, aren't they? This sermon is not addressing your next-door neighbor who clubs on the weekends, you know, sleeps around on his spouse. That, that's not who he's talking about. Jesus is addressing the people that follow Jesus, and he's turning around and going, Hey, if you really want to follow me, you've got to just stop doing the external stuff. There's people, most people out there aren't even trying to do the external stuff, right? They don't care. They don't care about God. They don't believe in God. That's not who Jesus is addressing. That wide gate, guys, that wide gate is not worldliness. That wide gate is churchiness without Christ. You get it? That wide gate is people that think they show up to church and they're in heaven. People that think they... They read the Bible a little bit and they go to heaven. People that think they marry a Christian and they get in by extension. People that think that as long as they take their kids to Sunday school and their kids grow up in the faith, they did their job as a parent and they'll probably get in. That's the wide gate. It's easy Christianity. Cheap grace. All religion, no relationship. That's the wide gate. When you turn on the TV and you see a preacher up there in a suit and he's just throwing out cuddly verses from the Proverbs, and there's no substance is what he's saying. He never brings out the gospel. He never calls people to repentance. He never talks about sin. All he does is ask for money. And everybody there is like holding up their Bible and they're giving money. That's the wide gate, guys. How do they fill their churches up, you know, thousands of people? They cast the gate wide. It's easy Christianity. And Jesus is saying, that is the broad way. That is the way that you can, you can kind of pick and choose what you want. I can't be perfect like the Father is perfect, but I can just follow some of these external rules and I can look the part, and it makes it easier for me. But then there's a narrow gate. There's a narrow gate, and very few find it. Very few find it. Well, what does it look like? Well, he continues with examples. One gate leads to life. One gate leads to destruction. Okay? There's no middle gate that's like purgatory time. Right? There's two gates. Wide one, narrow one. One to destruction, one to life. Those who find it are few. Then he uses an illustration. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets. Again, he's not talking about beware of people out there that don't talk about Christ. No, people that talk about Christ, but they're false. Why? Because they're leading you into a wide gate. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do you see the theme again? Outwardly they're sheep, inwardly they're wolves. Outwardly they're Christian, inwardly they're not. Outwardly they look like they please the Lord, inwardly they don't know the Lord. Same theme he's been hammering home the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now beware of the ones that pose themselves as leaders and try to lead you in their way. And maybe it doesn't feel right or doesn't feel comfortable, but it feels real easy. And it relieves you because you're like, oh, I know, I was feeling so convicted about these things. But you're right. God is just a God of love and he doesn't care about these things. Wide gate. Be wary of those. Outwardly they wear sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Verse 16. You can recognize them. 
You can tell the difference between an outward sheep and an inward sheep. How can you tell the difference? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? If I want to know if this tree is a peach tree or an apple tree or whatever it is, you pluck the fruit, take a bite, and if it tastes like a peach, this this is a peach tree. A peach tree is not going to produce pears. And so if you take a bite and it's a pear, this this is not a peach tree. I don't care if it's in a peach orchard. I don't care if the tour guide on the hayride told me this, these are all peach trees. You take the bite and it's a pear, that tree doesn't belong. And Jesus is saying it's the same way. What are the fruit that they're producing in their lives? Is it all external works? This is what makes it hard, guys. Well, he reads the Bible. He stands up there and preaches. He prays over people. He picks people up and drops them off where they need to go. He does a lot of things that are Christian-y. But the whole Sermon on the Mount, that's not the fruit Jesus was talking about. Does the person follow the letter of the law? That's not what he's talking about. What's it look like behind the letter of the law? I was meeting with a gentleman recently, and I'm very, um, you know, I like this guy. And he's older, and we've talked a few times. And uh, from what I could tell on the outside, he's very Christian, a very Christian man. Does a lot of Christian things, does a lot of things in the church, and is very impressive. But then one time he said something, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I said, you know, I I should bring this up. I thought, now, if I bring this up, I'm going to see his true colors, because he's either going to get defensive and growly, or he's going to accept the the conversation. I brought it up to him. He thanked me that I brought it up. He thanked me, said, this is, you're right, this is good, you know, and he addressed the issue. Now, to me, that's an inside-out Christian. When you get him alone in a corner, and you're away from the public the public's eye, and you challenge them on something, and they're repentant, you know, this is the, you're dealing with the real deal. Because it's not about all the things that they perform in the church, but what they re, their real relationship with Jesus Christ. And these are the kind of underneath, inside, interior things that Jesus is talking about. How you identify a person really knows Jesus. Right? And so he says, you can identify them, you can identify them by their fruits. Every healthy tree, verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I have to make a clarification. Is Jesus saying that if you're really a Christian, you really know Jesus, you will never mess up ever? And you will always walk the perfect line and do everything perfectly? No. But when you're caught, or when you mess up, or when someone brings something to you, do you deny it and sweep it under the rug called grace? Or do you repent? That's the difference. That's the difference. If someone comes up to me, Pastor, I saw that you did this, and it looked insincere to me or something like that. And if I say, no, 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 hey, hey, you just need to listen to me. I'm the one, I got degrees, and blah, blah, blah. Ravenous wolf, man. Right? But if I say, you know what? Let's talk about that. Is that, is that what I did? If that's really what I did, I, I'm sorry. Who, can I, who should I apologize to? That's your test of a healthy pastor, guys. A test of a healthy pastor is not can he preach, does he dress well, whatever. A test of a healthy pastor is when he messes up, can he face that and say, yes, that was me, I repent, let's move forward. And it's also the same test of a healthy member, of a healthy Christian. So you're not always bearing perfect fruit, but that fruit is constant and it's growing. 
and it's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience. You know, it's, it's this interior work that can't just be measured externally. How many verses do you know or how many languages can you read of the Bible? Man, those are great tools. But what's going on inside of you? That's the narrow gate. So I said, you can tell who's in the narrow gate and who's in the wide gate. You can tell who's wearing sheep's clothing and who's actually a sheep. What kind of fruit are they producing in their life? And then listen to what he says. Here's the scary part, guys. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, what, what is going on there? Like, you know, thieves and murderers, they're not going to go up to Jesus like, wait a minute, but I thought we were good. Maybe some of them will, but that's not the general. Who's going to go up there and be confused and look at their ticket like, well, I thought this was legit. Or approach the bridegroom as the bride and then Jesus doesn't say, I do. Who's going to be shocked? The one that felt like they were dating Jesus their whole life. That's who's going to be shocked. And Jesus says, well, you showed up at services and you did a lot of things that look Christian-y and you spoke Christianese and you did a lot of outward things that real Christians also do. But inwardly, I didn't know you. I do not know you. I know who you are. I know of you. I know all the facts about you, but I don't have a relationship with you. How is that possible? How is that possible that people can be Christian-y and not be Christian? How is it possible that people can follow the way of Jesus and not actually follow Jesus? How is that possible? By not heeding the Sermon on the Mount. By living your life according to external standards and not ever coming to a real reckoning with who Jesus is. That you're a sinner that needs to repent and give your life over to the Savior. But if you're someone over here who goes, well, if I do enough nice things, I'll earn my spot in heaven. You may not say that, but in your heart, that's what you really believe. When you hear a sermon on grace, you kind of go, that just doesn't sound right. I've got to do something. I've got to do something that kind of earns my spot, kind of a 50-50. Jesus, you died on the cross, and then I picked up the rest of the slack. That is not what Jesus teaches. Right? See, if I know you, you're in. If I don't know you, it doesn't matter what you did. I just don't know you. That's what's scary, guys. That's what's scary. It, that scares me more than all the passages about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, people that shake their fist at God, that hate God, Noah and the ark and the flood. All those people hated God. I mean, it's still scary, but it's not as scary as the people that think they don't hate God, but really they're not with him. Isn't that, isn't that scary? That nobody wants to show up at, at their own wedding and then have their bride look at them like, or their groom look at them like, who are you? And that's what Jesus is saying is going to happen to a lot of people because very few does he say, yep, I know you. I mean, these people, they call him Lord. And look what they did. Like they prophesied. They cast out demons. Maybe they thought they were casting out demons or, or whatever. 
They did many miracles. You know, they did things that you go, oh my goodness, look what they did. That is amazing. That can only be the power of God. Maybe it was the power of Satan. Maybe it was the power of a critical mass and people just gave enough money. And who knows what it was, but Jesus is saying, that wasn't me. And I think they're genuinely confused. I think they're scratching their heads like, wait a minute, somewhere along the line I missed it. Something, somewhere along the line, I denied Jesus and didn't even realize it. Because we compared ourselves to murderers and thieves, the people who break the external laws, and we go, ha, I'm not in that camp. I keep the external laws. I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my wife. In reality, you know, A, B, C, D, look at all the things I do and all the things I don't do. I must be safe. That is a denial of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because then you're saying the cross isn't necessary. That the broken flesh and the broken, the spilled blood is not necessary because you can keep the law fine on your own. So a life lived according to externals and not a life lived internally transformed is a denial of Jesus Christ because you're saying everything you came to do and everything that you did, for me, I don't need it. Other people do, I just don't. And it's a denial of Jesus. And so then on that day when you stand before him, he will deny you. He closes with one last illustration to bring it home. Starting in verse 24. This is familiar. This is familiar to many of us. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now we've all heard a lot of messages on this passage and I think many of them are a little bit misguided because they pluck this and just preach it but it's not in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So what is Jesus talking about? When he says the difference, look, they're the same. You've got two guys that have the same raw materials. They've got the same uh, architect. They have the same tools. They build the same house. There's only one difference between the two builders. The house looks the same. The materials are the same. The chimney is the same. The layout is the same. They're both facing the same direction. They've both been approved by the same village ordinances. I mean, they're the same. There's one difference. One was built on a slab of rock, and one was built on shifting sands. What is that rock, and what are those sands? Who says it? He says it right there in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine, what words? What words? If I were standing here in the sermon and in my closing, I said, now listen, listen to me. I've been here standing talking to you for 30 minutes. Those of you who leave these doors and do what I just said. Right? So what, what words of mine? The Sermon on the Mount. This whole thing about inside out versus outside in. He's wrapping that up. He's summing that up. And he's saying, if you obey what I'm talking about, if you understand the difference between the inside out Christian and the outside in Christian, then you'll know the difference between building on sand and building on rock. Building on sand is building your house, your salvation, on what you can do. The shifting sands of your own work. 
And it, probably, it looked pretty good. From the outside, people are going to go, yeah, Christian, for sure. Yeah, look. At a quick glance, they'll look at it. But a close inspector who understands what the fruit looks like of knowing Jesus will check the foundation and see that this isn't right. A wise person is going to listen to Jesus' sermon and say, man, it's not just about doing things. It's not just about looking the part. I need a radical transformation with Jesus Christ. I mean, I need to know Him like in a personal way. He has to do something inside of me. I mean, this is what His own disciples needed to get. I mean, G Peter is like lopping off people's ears and wanting to punch people in the face and everything, you know? And then he's denying Jesus when the little servant girl comes in and accuses him. He's like, no, I don't know Jesus. I mean, he's a wreck. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon him in power that Jesus said he would receive. And he received this transformation. He bursts out the doors that they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. And they burst out and he preaches his first sermon. And he's not the same. And Jesus is saying that transformation has to happen inside of you. Remember when he's sitting with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a keeper of the law. He's a teacher of the law, and he says, Nicodemus, hey, Nick, hey, you don't get it. You need to be born again. Born again? Like, go back into my mom's womb? I mean, that just sounds like something disgusting I would see on the History Channel or, you know, National Geographic. I mean, what are you talking about? Like, can I, can I shrink down and go back to my, my mother's old? I mean, he's like, hey, Nick, <laughs> spiritually speaking. You need to be born of the Spirit. Now, you and I can't go to the Christian bookstore and buy three doses of spiritual birth. You can't buy it. You can't go at home and produce it. You can't grow it in your garden and eat the fruit. And, and suddenly, it's an interior transformation that takes place when you confess your sins and realize all that I can do, every, all my effort to be Christian, all my effort to do the right things, at the end of the day is shifting sand. I cannot stand on it. The only thing I can stand on is what Jesus did for me. Right? That's the only thing you can stand on in the end. When this passage is read, oftentimes we understand that storm. If I could pick one sermon, one sermon, I knew this was my last message to give you, and the end of the world is going to happen at 12 o'clock. Sorry, Esther. Hey, this is it. This is it. You know, we read this and we go, you know, if you build your life on the rock, on the rock of Jesus Christ, when storms come in your life, you'll be okay. When you lose a job, just stand on the rock, you'll be okay. When, when you know, uh, your marriage is having a hard time, just stand on the rock, your marriage will be okay. That's not what this is saying. What, are the, what is the storm in this passage? What is the flood? Okay. Yeah. All right. It's, it's matching everything else he just said. Like when he said, there's going to come a time when people come up to me with their tickets. And I say, Lord, am I in? No. That's the flood. Right? Like in Noah and the ark, when he sent the flood, the symbolic of punishment and condemnation. There's going to be a time. There's going to be a time when there's going to be a flood of judgment. Very few. Enter through that small door in the ark. Very few find that door. Everyone else gets flooded. And so this isn't about difficulties in your life. This is about a time that's going to come. A time that's going to come. And right now, maybe it doesn't feel real to you. Right now, maybe this is all just churchy kind of lingo. But there's going to come a time 
when your, your, you know, all your junior high friends are gone, your Facebook account has been deleted, the earth has been destroyed, okay? Jesus came, took out the Antichrist, it's over. There's going to come a time when the, the history of the world is wrapped up, and you're going to stand at that gate. And the difference between your eternal destruction and your eternal life with Jesus Christ is going to be, do you know him? Not did you go to church. And I know most of you in here understand that. You get that. But we also have friends and loved ones and neighbors, don't we? That kind of don't get it. And they live a good life, but they don't get it. You need to talk to them just as desperately, if not more desperately, than you need to talk to the, to the person that's living up a lifestyle and, and verbally has, you know, rejects God. It's nothing, nothing to do with God. And then our friends and our family that are kind of, they're churchy, but they don't really get it. They're in an even more dangerous position. Because at least the other people, they get it. These people think they're in. These people are going to call Him Lord. They give to their church. And it's up to you and I to say, wait a minute, it looks sheepy, but if I, if I tug on that a little bit, there's something different underneath. Your house looks pretty good, but if we dig a little bit, if I just ask some penetrating questions and hang out with you for a little bit, and I start to see that something is not right here, it's not a question of does the person sin or not. It's how do they handle sin? Are they repentant? Do they take it to Jesus? Do they, do they understand what the cross meant for them? That, that's the difference between the wide gate and the narrow gate. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. And we're going to have a, uh, a time of communion. And uh, the Bible makes it really clear that this is not for everyone. Okay, when we pass the bread and we pass the cup, if you take it, that's you telling the church, telling me, and telling God, yes, I believe. Yes, I have a relationship with you. But the Bible tells us if you do that, and you don't really mean it, you're drinking condemnation on yourself. Don't, don't do that. Maybe you are a believer, but there, the Lord is calling you out on some things, and you're not right you know, between you and Him. Paul tells the Corinthians, you let that cup pass. But better, while it's being passed out, get, get it fixed. You know, take it to the Lord. Lord, here I confess where I messed up. I'm confessing that I messed up with this, and I need your help. I need your grace. Get it right. And then we'll take it together. I'm going to ask Mike to play softly. And as the elements are being passed, I want you to really think about your relationship with Christ. Where is it? Is it? And how is it? And then we'll take it together. This has been a presentation of Christian Fellowship Church of Itasca.